This is the Decision Point with Anand Nanduri. A lot of fun outcomes on Sunday. The Chargers look like a Super Bowl contender. The Pittsburgh Steelers made me look silly, but they're not going to make the playoffs. Like I lament every Steelers win, but I'm not worried. Do I look concerned that the Steelers might make a fool out of me? and find a way into the playoffs. Does this face look concerned to you at all, Anand? No. No, not at all. No. You look you look pretty set in. Washed quarterbacks like Ben Roethlisberger can get up for some games and play yep. well, but it's a roll of the dice every morning when they open their eyes, like Tom Cruise opening his eyes after yet another death on the battlefield <laughs> in Edge of Tomorrow. And he wakes up on the deck of the barracks again, like the next day. Ben Roethlisberger opens his eyes Sunday morning, having no idea whether his arm's going to work, whether his body's going to be able to function fluidly. And it did. He, he was j- just able to function well enough to get the win in one of these classic AFC North grindhouse battles, right? And, and congratulations to them. They did it, but... No one was surprised, right? 2019 Steelers beat the Ravens. No one's allowed to be surprised. Not a single football fan in America was surprised by that outcome. I certainly was not, and I am not worried. The Steelers should have known that they needed to go into rebuilding mode, at least a casual rebuild, if not a full teardown, and instead they were delusional signed a bunch of fringe guys and did a bunch of trades for Joe Schubert types from Jacksonville, dumping a bunch of late round picks, picks that are valuable. And those trades will come back to haunt them. That was what we talked about this summer. And we are right. We're still right. Them beating the Ravens doesn't change that. No. Another team that we talked about that did lose and is still somehow... In second place, a delusional franchise that should have conducted a full teardown with eyes wide open and yet found themselves accidentally rebuilding was Atlanta. And it's stunning to look up and see Atlanta second in the division with a negative 116-point differential. This is why, this is why, Anand, you have to rebuild with a plan, with a purpose, because you could end up being Atlanta, get nothing out of this season, and pick in the teens. Yeah, and this is this is why if you have an expensive older quarterback and you're going nowhere and he can help somebody, you have to move him. Right, because Atlanta would be fun and interesting if this was a young quarterback season. Right, the, the right now they're the fighting Cordero Pattersons. He's the only thing keeping them afloat. And, and I mean, it's not like Matt Ryan has played awfully. That's the problem. The problem is Matt Ryan could help a Pittsburgh right now. He's he's an upgrade over Ben Roethlisberger. Matt Ryan should be doing that for somebody else right now. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. Well, that that would actually have fixed both teams. Right, So the big problem with Pittsburgh is you can't win with Ben Roethlisberger at the helm. That was the fatal flaw of the franchise that we talked about this summer. We also talked about Atlanta missing their best opportunity to maximize the value in return for Matt Ryan. Right. 
I mean, Pittsburgh would have been a perfect fit. Would have solved both dilemmas. Solved both dilemmas. We wouldn't have had shows. We would have had no takes this summer. <laughs> and Atlanta just traded Matt Ryan to Pittsburgh like they should have. Instead, you know what they did? They drafted a particular player at a particular position, which has never been drafted that high in the history of the NFL draft. Setting the record, being the team that drafts a particular position higher than it's ever been drafted. Is that typically a good idea, Anand? No. No, you don't want to be the first to do something of that sort. Right. And then you look up at Pittsburgh and you look at how these two respective rookie tight ends are trending. And you shouldn't be surprised when you look up in four weeks and Pat Fryermuth is simply outscoring Kyle Pitts in fantasy football. How crazy is that? It's not that crazy. It's not that crazy because they're tight ends, and right. that position is simply volatile. In fantasy football, it's incredibly difficult to project tight end production. Travis yep. Kelsey, or Kels, has the same fantasy points per game as Rob Gronkowski. Kels was a first-round pick. Rob Gronkowski was a 12th-round pick. Good luck guessing which tight ends will produce on any given season. Right? Just, just best of luck to you, sir. Now... But that's also the reason why you can't be drafting one in the top five. You just can't do it. You can't no. do it. Just bank the value by drafting a tight end in the second round like yep. Pittsburgh did. How many excellent tight ends have been drafted in the second round? A lot. A lot. That I don't, was the move. At wide there, receiver and tight end, you get best value in the second round. Matt, are there any premier tight ends in the league that were round one picks? I can't think of any. Just TJ Hawkinson. Okay, yeah. Hawk, Hawk is different. Hawkins, that's it. I mean, that is it. I mean, Mark Andrews, day two pick. I mean, you go down the list. Hunter Henry, day two pick. Dallas Goddard, day two pick. You just go down the list. All day two picks. Recently, a tight end that profiles very close to Kyle Pitts. In fact, one of his best comparables was also a first-round pick, and he's not firing at the NFL level. That's Noah Fant. Yeah. But if you wanted to try to project what you're going to get from Kyle Pitts, you look at Noah Fant. Is that worth a top 10 pick? Fuck no. No. What are you doing? No. Even if they hit, it's not worth a top 10 pick. Oh. Right? Oh. Right? Yeah, no. They could have had Justin Fields or Mac Jones. Right. The thing is, even if you miss on the quarterback, right, as long as you throw that dart, as long as you're looking at the right positions, eventually it's going to work out in your favor. Now, if you're Atlanta and you're throwing darts at Kyle Pitts in fourth overall, much less, Right? I mean, they could have just, look, I know, I know there were teams trying to trade up to four for a quarterback. I know there were. And what I'm trying to tell you is not only did you turn down all that draft capital, you turned down the ability to draft one yourself. And they didn't go and get Jamar Chase, one of the best wide receiver prospects we've seen in the last decade. Penny Sewell, one of the best tackle prospects we've seen in the last decade. No, 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 no. Dude, they went tight end. They went tight end. They went tight end. And when you look at Sewell in particular, you have the perfect dichotomy of franchises where you have Detroit with Matthew Stafford going absolutely nowhere and deciding to be honest with themselves and their fans and trade Matthew Stafford and rebuild from the studs up. Yep. Right? Rip it out and rebuild from the studs. They didn't do that in Atlanta. They vacillated back and forth. They asked the owner, what do you want to do? And he didn't know. He's like, I'm loyal to Matt Ryan. You don't ask the owner, dude. 
He doesn't know. He's going to be emotional, right? He He's good at managing Home Depots. He's not good at managing NFL teams. Don't ask the owner. Be like, we have a trade in place for Matt Ryan. Will you sign? Okay, at that point, you get the owner involved. You don't ask him, what do you want to do? Hey, what do you want to do, Arthur Blank? Yeah. You should have everything set. The board set before your next move. Okay, Arthur, sign off on this. This means we're going to be rebuilding in parallel with Detroit. That would have been the right move. And then they could have drafted Penny Sewell. Yeah. And been set up for the next decade. Yeah. But instead, they're where they are, which is one of the more wayward franchises in the league. And you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It is complete darkness where they are, where Detroit can already see it. Yeah. Detroit can already see the rays of sunshine peeking through. Yeah, it's tough if you're Atlanta, right? Like, right now, they're in their worst-case scenario. They have absolutely, positively no shot at winning a Super Bowl. None. A negative 100-plus point differential, and they're second in the division. And they may make the playoffs, which might be even worse, right? Like, if you're a bad team, there is nothing worse than being a bad team that lucks into a couple wins and sneaks into the playoffs only to get pasted. Yeah, the, the, the Houston Texans. That happened to the Houston Texans a few years ago, and that delayed their rebuild for years. Yeah, and look, like we're not we're not talking about last year's Washington team, which was clearly talented and limited at quarterback and won a very bad division. That's not the type of team we're talking about. We're talking about the seven seed, the six and seven seed in the NFC this year are not good teams. They're not. I don't care who gets in. Somebody could get hot and win a playoff game. None of them are winning an NFC championship. Nobody's going to the Super Bowl, right? So all you're doing is de- delaying the inevitable. If you lock in that six or seven spot, you'd almost be better. Unless you, you're a very injured team that's getting pieces back, you'd almost be better not making the playoffs, saying, hey, we did a lot of really great things this year. We won a few games we shouldn't, whatever. I think Washington, you, you, you talked about Washington. Washington will bail them out. Yeah. Washington's going to bail them out and make sure they don't make the playoffs. I mean, they should be thanking Washington. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the thing is, like, but, like, look, Washington's not a bad football team. I mean, do, you think, do you think Atlanta fans actually think they have any kind of shot this year? That's the thing. Like, everyone knows what they are except Arthur Blank. He's going to be the last person on planet Earth to come to terms with what this team is. I just I don't think that he's ever going to move off Matt Ryan. You got to protect these owners from themselves. Yeah. Right, exactly. Cuz they've they've gotten emotional they grow emotional attachments to their quarterbacks, right? To their star players. Nobody is more uh, nobody does this more than Jerry Jones, right? Every star player in Dallas gets re-signed to some huge deal. And it's, it's hard for them to let go because they're the ones that are spending time with these players and their families and everybody, right? And as a GM, your job is to put the emotion aside and say, hey, we have a $40 million quarterback and our team is going nowhere. This doesn't make any sense. What are we doing here? If you set a rebuild in motion and a Matt Ryan trade in motion, you need to prepare the owner at the right time with an avalanche of data like you need to be 
hyper prepared to present. Yeah. Right. This is a person who is accustomed to participating in professional corporate presentations. Right. So if you were to decide to take this team down this road, knowing that Arthur Blank has an emotional attachment to a Matt Ryan, you would need to dot every single I and cross every T. And don't you think that if Arthur Blank got a text and said, hey, would you be willing to spend an hour talking to the general manager about his plans for the team and the future of the franchise? Don't you think it's a meeting that Arthur Blank would happily take? Yeah. I think a lot of owners dream about that scenario. Right. That they would have a general manager competent enough to put together a proper corporate presentation on the direction of the franchise. And that's like a wet dream right. for an owner, but they never get that, right? Because they're, they're football guys who don't know how to use PowerPoint, okay? So what you need is someone that actually understands how to get things done in corporate America that can sit down with Arthur Blank and throw charts and graphs and trends and analytics and probabilities at him. And after slide 30... He's been convinced, okay, this is why we need to make these critical franchise redefining moves. And the major concern, if you're a GM, right, especially if you're an okay to bad GM, is they're just trying to get to next year, right? Their goal is, let me get enough done that I'm retained for another year and another year and another year, right? Whereas if you're a really good GM, you have a three to five year plan. You have a five to 10 year plan, right? And what your goal is, is how do, what do I do this year to get to year three? What am I trying to get done by year three to get to year five, six, seven on the, on down, right? Because if you don't have a quarterback, operation number one is find a quarterback. The big problem in Atlanta is they have a quarterback and the team isn't ready, right? Like, if if we were talking yeah, about there, there's a there's a misalignment of career trajectories. Exactly. Your players' career trajectories need to be aligned. Right. And that's a slide. That should be a goddamn slide in the Arthur Blank slideshow. In the corporate presentation that we're going to put together. You and me, we're taking over Atlanta. We're taking over the Falcons. We're going to do new uniforms. And we're going to do everything different. We're going to blow this thing up and get Arthur Blank to sign on the dotted line. That's literally the only goal. Is get him to sign on that dotted line. Get Matt Ryan out. And look, like... There there are nice ways to go about this. It's called politics. Yeah. It's called politics. And and my first thought after bad team decisions, one of my first thoughts is, oh, there's no one in this front office that understands politics. Look, you have to do what's right by Matt Ryan, right? Don't make this decision without him. Be like, look, Matt, we thank you for all the time that you've spent in our organization. We're very happy to send you to a team that will give us what we think you're worth in return. If you and your agent want to go find the best destination for you, we're happy to sign off on that. But right now, we're wasting years that you could win a Super Bowl. This isn't helping you either, other than the fact that you're making $40 million. Football players want to win. We're not ready to win, Matt. Someone's got to explain both sides of this because this marriage between Arthur Blank, the Falcons, and Matt Ryan makes no sense. It made sense three years ago. It made sense five years ago. It doesn't make sense right now, right? 
And especially as you've got young players in Ridley and Pitts, and now Cordero Patterson's come out of nowhere to become something for you. You've got all of these interesting pieces, and Matt Ryan is going to win you a couple games that you shouldn't win, and that draft pick in round one is going to get worse. That, that doesn't help you, sh- short or long term. You're not going to win anything now. Right? What are we going to hang a second place NFC South banner at Mercedes Benz? What are we doing here? Right? No, you're in the same division as Tom Brady. You're in the same division as Tom Brady. Sean Payton's still there. Carolina's got a good roster. Of the four teams, preseason, we probably picked you to be last. Most people did, right? Nobody thought anything of Atlanta. The fact that they're in second place with one of the worst point differentials in the league tells you exactly what's going on. Matt Ryan has won them a couple games that he that they shouldn't win, and right now they're staring down the barrel of, holy shit, we might be in the playoffs, and we have no business being there. Imagine Detroit with Matthew Stafford. Oof. Is that too much to ask? Just, just imagine that. It, they'd be in the same spot, right? Probably battling for that last NFC playoff spot, and having nothing to show for it, right? They're still in line to draft Kayvon Thibodeau. They got to stop winning games. They got to stop it right now. Okay, Dan, you, you, you prove your point. Now stop it. Did you see Dan Campbell go for it on his own 30? Love that man. Love that man, right? The thing is, I don't know whether this Dan Campbell experiment in Detroit is going to work or not, but I love what I've seen given what he's working with, right? He said, screw it. I have a quarterback that can throw a ball. I'm going to throw the ball. I have two running backs that I believe in. I'm going to give them opportunities to do whatever they want. And we've got a bunch of these young receivers. We don't know which of them are good. We're just going to throw them out there and find out. And to hell with ownership in the front office that want their draft pick. They'll get their draft pick. We're not good enough to win five games. But in that process, I'm going to establish if – the analytics say we go for it on fourth down. We're going for it on fourth down. I don't care if it's fourth and five from our own one. If it says go for it, we're going for it, right? And I, I think that that's something that Detroit has lacked forever. Forever their identity was their quarterback, right? It, forever the identity's been Matthew Stafford. At some point, that identity's got to be a coach in a front office that have a plan you can believe in. And you saw the beginning of that this past week you saw Mike Zimmer's outdated, let's be conservative, we're going to do everything by the 1980s football book, get blown out of the water by a team with one-tenth of his talent. And I, I, I thought that that was a beautiful moment. I really did. I thought that was a beautiful moment for Detroit and for football fans everywhere. Everybody was happy that Detroit won that game, outside of maybe the Twin Cities. My daughter was happy. My daughter just wants every team to have a win because she wants the players and their families to be happy. She's just very sad when she sees a team with no wins. She's like such an empath, emotionally cheering for the Lions as if getting a win will boost all of their spirits, which it will. It, it, It will, but those of us that are thinking about this much more cool and clinically... We're just like, you guys need to max out your losses. It's all about Kayvon Thibodeau. He's already declared for the draft. It's on. He's skipping the bowl game. Let's go. Let's go get Kayvon Thibodeau. Let's do it. Yep. And if, if I were Atlanta and I had traded Matt Ryan, I would have gone and drafted Penny Sewell, knowing that it's a multi-year rebuild, and I'm going to go ahead and put that quarterback on the top of the building like the tower at the top when the structure 
is built up yeah. from the ground to the sky. Then you add the quarterback. So drafting Justin Fields wouldn't have been the right move either. Sewell was the right move. I think so too. It's just the the weird question if you're Atlanta then is what do you do? And I have a theory about what you should do. Ignore that Kirk Cousins is in Minnesota. I think the archetype for what you do is what Minnesota did this year in taking a stab at Kellen Mond in round three, right? So if you're Atlanta, you take one of these high upside, big tool guys that just needs to play, right? That There are some guys that just need to play. There's a ton of these guys in the draft. Right, and so you go in round three or four, you get one of them, whether you're Houston and it's Davis Mills, whoever, you, you know the, the archetype of the guy that I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I think we may set the record this year, well, in 2022, for number of quarterbacks drafted in slot 10 through 32. There are very few top 10 talents in this 2022 quarterback class. There's a lot of late first-round talents. Yeah, and the big thing is... Every year without fail, there are a bunch of guys that should be late first round picks that get pushed way up the board because teams value quarterbacks, right? And so guys that should be drafted where Lamar Jackson was drafted end up getting drafted inside the top 15. And there is a drastic difference between getting drafted at 12 and getting drafted at 32. The allocation of capital is different. What your franchise is expecting from you is different. What your fan base is expecting from you is different. Because we were all okay with Lamar sitting, right? If Mac Jones had been sitting through week 13, we there'd be pitchforks outside of Belichick's house in New England. Like, you can't do that anymore. There's no sitting anybody. If you're taking in the top half of round one, you're playing year one. That's just the way that it is now. And I think that at some point we've got to accept that pushing quarterbacks up boards for the sake of doing it is bad practice. And it's going to happen again this year. There are going to be five or six guys that get thrown into that round one discussion, and maybe three or four of them are round one guys. But somebody's going to pull in and draft someone way too high. It happens every single year, right? And if you're Atlanta and you're rebuilding, the way that I would have gone about doing it is I would have taken Sewell, find somebody you like in that 2-3-4 range, and draft a quarterback that you think you can develop. Because if he's the guy, great. Right? If he's not the guy, great. Because then you'll have the capital to go get one in round one. They could have had Mond. Could have had Mond. Right? Sewell and Mond. That would have been a great move. Yeah, we, we, we love what the Lions are doing, and we love Rick Spielman. Yeah. That's the move. Yeah. That would have been the move. I think so, too. Now, fortunately, and thanks to the chat and Cody Carpentier, you look at Atlanta's schedule, they're not making the playoffs. No. Spoiler alert, they can't make the playoffs. They play Buffalo. They play San Francisco. The schedule tightens on the Falcons, and they will likely draft between slot 8 and 15. That's going to be where Atlanta's drafting, closer to 8 than 15, and that's going to be quintessential QB temptation territory. Yep. It's, oh, and most years, you're not getting a Justin Fields and a Mac Jones. Most years, that guy is Paxton Lynch. Blaine Gabbert. It's terrifying. Jake Locker. We can go down the list. Yeah. It's terrifying to draft a quarterback in that zone because 10 other teams have passed on Dwayne Haskins because they've talked to Urban Meyer, and they know he's not ready, and they know he's not ready to be a professional. So there's always flaws with players 
unless it's Mac Jones and he just happened to be in a class with Trey Lance and Justin Fields and Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence. Trey Lance is the rare quarterback that should sit for a year because he hasn't played a lot of football, came from a small school, very raw, but unlike mobile quarterbacks in this upcoming quarterback class, he showed great accuracy as a thrower and had incredible arm strength. Malik Willis doesn't really have that, so I don't believe Malik Willis is going to go in the top 10. I think that he's going to be sifted out through the process, and he'll fall to the late first round, more in that Lamar Jackson, Drew Brees zone, end of the first round, beginning of the second round. Watch for a guy like Sam Howell to get pushed up. That's what I'm expecting. I think Sam Howell is going to get pushed up a little bit. Kenny Pickett's obviously going to get pushed up a huge bit. And it's not necessarily even for anything that Kenny Pickett did. It's you go back and you watch your Baker Mayfield played and played a ton of football in college. You go back and a year ago, Mac Jones played a ton of college football. Tua, ton of college football, right? All of these guys over time as you just watch them. Joe Burrow, ton of college football. At some point, somebody's going to notice this trend and say, hey, maybe we should take Kenny Pickett just because he's the most experienced of all these guys, right? And then they're going to turn on the tape and watch the progression and the growth, and I haven't personally gotten to him yet, but he's the guy that I think is going to fly up draft boards only because he's played a ton of football and the best football he played was at the end, right? You want to see guys grow. And Desmond Ritter as well. Desmond Ritter as well. Right, You want to see them grow and get better year after year after year. And I think that Kenny is the guy that, that, that somebody's going to throw a dart at earlier than we think. Yeah. For all those intangible reasons, Matt Corral will likely be a top 10 pick as well. Yep. And the best way to avoid the landmines at quarterback late in the first round is to draft Carson Strong. I think Carson Strong has the highest floor. He will likely go top 15 based on arm strength but we've seen even quarterbacks with huge red flags on their profile like Josh Allen ascend with that yeah upper percentile arm strength so that is something that can bolster a player's floor and create a more stable pick where if you're drafting a player based on athleticism or leadership you're getting a little bit further away from their ability to simply complete passes in the NFL where arm talent is still one of, if not the best indicator of success at the NFL level. And I think Carson strong will be the best value in the NFL draft. It's going to be either Carson strong or Malik Willis just depends on how Malik Willis develops. Same thing with Mac Jones versus Trey Lance. Mac Jones is currently the best value But in three years, we could be looking back and saying that Trey Lance was the best value. Yeah. It was not and never will be considered the best value drafting Zach Wilson at two. It all comes back to Zach. You knew I wasn't going to have this conversation without. You just can't let that one go. (laughs) You can't let that one go. Taking a shot at Zach Wilson is teed up. I'm driving that thing down the fairway. The big thing with a Carson Strong is if you watch Justin Herbert, he's the best example of this because his footwork is clean and he's, he's gotten a lot better at a lot of things. But you can notice there is a difference between Justin Herbert and Mac Jones and Joe Burrow. 
Jones and Burrow are incredible in their own right. They can't be late. If they're late to a read, they can't get the ball there. That's why the fact that they're such cerebral guys that understand the ins and outs so well matters. Justin Herbert can be late and still get the ball there. Carson Strong has an arm big enough. Josh Allen has an arm big enough that they can be late and still get the ball there. They can cover for their own mistakes. That's the big deal about drafting a strong-armed quarterback. One that's cerebral enough, right? Strong-armed quarterback. What a guy. He's a lot of fun to watch. He's a lot of fun to watch. I love him. I, I, that's, that's my guy. There's so few quarterbacks that check the boxes that you really need to check to be a top 10 quarterback. You could argue, other than Carson Strong and Sam Howell, there's no top 10 quarterbacks in this upcoming draft. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, for whatever reason, Howell and Strong get pushed down outside the top 10, and there are no quarterbacks, absolutely zero drafted in the top 10. I think that would be something. It would be wild. It would be crazy given the history of volumes of quarterbacks going in the top 10, but there just isn't a quarterback that gets you excited, right? I was much more excited about Mac Jones last year than I am about any of these quarterbacks because as much as I like Carson Strong, he is a Nevada QB. Yeah. It's still still a mountain whack division quarterback. I just, I can't, I just. It's tough to wrap your head around. It would be hard to push a button on that guy with great tackles and edge rushers in this class. It would just be very hard to draft a Nevada quarterback in the top 10. I would do it for the tools because it does give you outs to have that arm strength. It gives you the outs that you're looking for. But, Jesus, man, it is a terrifying proposition to go quarterback this year. Yeah, it is. Absolutely terrifying. I mean, and they're all fun, right? That that's the, that's the tough part, is they're nowhere near as polished as last year's, but they're all fun. For me, the guy that I love watching the most is Matt Corral, right? But we're never going to know how much of that is Jeff Levy and Lane Kiffin, and how much of that is Matt Corral. That's the big, the great unknown here is how much of it is scheme. For Carson Strong, it's how how much how good are you playing players that have no business being on the same field as you. Right For Malik Willis, it's, well, Liberty's better than everybody they play. There's so many gigantic question marks for this year's QB class that, I mean, you could take your pick among any one of them and push them to the top. I think that's why it's so interesting. It's because there isn't a defined one, two, three, four, five like there was last year. Take your picket and move them to the top? It might happen. Take your picket? Cody thinks Pittsburgh should draft picket. You can stay at home. Look, that's a good fit. I mean, they don't need somebody who's who's got a rocket for an arm to throw the ball 90 yards downfield. Their guys get open in short areas, right? I, I mean, if you're looking for a really good culture team, all of that fit, Kenny Pickett to Pitt makes a lot of sense. It's not like he'd have to move far. He's moving from one end of the stadium to the other. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about UNC quarterbacks. The last UNC quarterback to go in the first round was Mitchell Trubisky. Yikes. A Nevada quarterback, a Cincinnati quarterback, a Pitt quarterback, a Liberty quarterback. Oh, man. Matt, you got to scout the player, not the helmet. I'm even more <laughs> terrified now than I was five minutes ago. 
Scout the player, not the helmet, Matt. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, man. When it, when you add it all up, it's yeah. it's scary. It is scary. You get a lot. You get a lot of uh, uh, you know, Big West, Mountain Whack, Big Sky, Conference USA. There's just a lot. There's a lot to be scared of. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So best of luck to Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Holy God, is this a year you got to trust your scouts? A couple of these guys are going to follow the second round. Atlanta should just take the best offensive lineman available. Just, just Evan Neal, Alabama. Without even thinking about it, they should try to lose as many games as possible and take the best offensive lineman. There's going to be a couple quality tackles available at slot 8 through 13. They should just close their eyes, push the button on the best tackle available, and then take a shot on a quarterback in the second round because one of these quarterbacks if not two or three one of them's gonna hit. are gonna fall out of the first round and one of those in round two is gonna hit it's just how it works and one of those guys is gonna be the next Jalen Hurts we don't know who it's gonna be but every couple years a quarterback from the second round hits yeah and this would be the perfect class to have multiple hits come out of the second round so Atlanta could Figure this out. Yeah, they can. Like, it's not too late. No, it's not. For them to get this right. It's not. It, they haven't completely missed their rebuild window. Right. They've just delayed it. Yeah. But they have to act now. They have to act now and start rebuilding with a purpose. Yeah. Or risk being the Houston Texans, right? That's, that's worst case scenario because they just had to extend money to Zach Cunningham's contract and cut him. I think they added $15 million in dead cap money for someone that's not going to play for them, right? Like, like this is what happens when you're a bad team with bad ownership. And I don't think Arthur Blank's a bad owner. I just think that he's reluctant to let go of Matt Ryan when he needs to, right? Like, it, it not all hope is lost in Atlanta. You're not some desolate franchise that has no hope forever. I think the big thing here is, the if you're an Atlanta fan, your dream, the dream is that Evan Neal, Alabama, falls to you in round one. If that happens, that's auto-draft. You, you don't even think about that. You're just on fire with these impossible playoff and or draft pick scenarios. Oh, it's going to happen. There's no way Atlanta's making the playoffs, number one. I don't and think there's no way they're getting Evan Neal. The whole purpose of us having this conversation about Atlanta is because they've Fucked themselves out of Evan Neal. They've spoiled the opportunity they could have had to get Evan Neal by going out and winning a bunch of close games against bad teams. I'm, I'm just saying that's the dream. I'm not saying it's going to happen. They're not going to get him. He's got to <laughs> go top five. That's the dream, Matt. Evan Neal's going to Jacksonville. Yeah, and we had Mac Jones at three last year. Wild things happen, Matt. <laughs> Atlanta's not making the playoffs, and nor are they getting Evan Neal. And that perfectly encapsulates what's wrong with yeah. their franchise strategy. Yeah, the process was very bad. Yeah, their team-building strategy is flawed, and, and, and that scenario distills it down perfectly. Yeah, because, I mean, they should be taking Evan Neal. It, they have the same record as the Saints. That is wild. And the Saints are starting Taysom Hill at quarterback. They'd be much better off in Atlanta if they were starting a quarterback like Taysom Hill because he's also fun. Yeah. Taysom Hill signed 
one of the most unique contracts in NFL history. Can you talk to us about this Taysom Hill contract and what makes it so unique? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there are a bunch of wildly reported numbers. Like, things will come out, like I think it was two years ago, they signed some four-year, $140 million deal. That was essentially a two-year deal with a bunch of void years. This is not the same, um, but it's realistically a four-year, $40 million deal for him to essentially play that offensive weapon role, but it has a bunch of QB-laden incentives in it, right? So, like, it kind of like the um, Carson Wentz deal when they when he was traded to Indianapolis where if he plays a certain percentage of snaps, the pick goes from round two to round one, right? This is very similar. If Taysom Hill takes X amount of snaps at quarterback or is promoted to their starting quarterback at some point, he's going to make QB money instead of tight end money. So it's a very weird deal, right? They have no idea what position he's going to play into the future because they have no idea what they can and can't do as the cap goes up and as they get a lot of these older players off the books with a lot of this dead money that we talked about them rolling over and rolling over and rolling over, right? Trevor Simeon isn't it. We know that. Jameis Winston got hurt almost immediately, so we have no idea what's going on there. I think this is kind of the Sean Payton believing in himself. I can find a role for this guy, no matter who our quarterback is or if he's our quarterback. So I think it's more of the, this is probably the best that we can do with $40 million over four years given to any player that we've got. And I think that's what they think. I don't know that I wholeheartedly believe in that. But us even talking about it as a $40 million contract is misleading. It's a one-year deal through 2022. He signed a one-year extension for $10 million. That's all it is. That's all it is. And then if he plays quarterback and plays well then they have him locked in at $10 million a year playing quarterback. So they have a value quarterback through 2025. With a bunch of incentives. That's all it is. That's it. That's it. It, it, It's a completely one-sided deal, except that he is guaranteed $10 million. Yeah. So they're saying to Taysom Hill, listen, you're very valuable. You can play quarterback. You can do all these things. We'll reimburse you. For your value, $10 million. Most players don't make $10 million in any given season. Yeah. So here's the carrot. And then the incentive for us is if you do end up developing into a quality quarterback, we get you at value for three consecutive seasons after that. And it's entirely on them whether they want to keep doing it, right? So I guess they'll try in the offseason to figure out if he's that guy. What that tells me is Trevor Simeon's probably not back. Um, I don't know if they bring Jamin back. I don't know if they bring Jameis back. Well, Jameis can't come back and play in week one anyway. He won't be ready. Based on when he got injured, he won't have any training camp or preseason snaps. He will be fully rehabilitated when the season starts, which means he won't be playing games until week three or four at best. That's best-case scenario for Jameis Winston, and that assumes that he attacks his rehabilitation with true vigor, unlike he's attacked his strength and conditioning in his entire career. Yeah, and I mean, they're they're protecting themselves. That's what this deal is. It's protection at multiple positions. Oh, they're going to be tempted to go quarterback too. There's going to be plenty of quarterbacks available when the Saints are drafting in the teens, and they're going to potentially succumb to that temptation. I hope they don't. But they'd be much better off... 
Saints drafting a quarterback than the Falcons. Because, again, the Falcons should tear it down and draft a quarterback in 2023 or 2024. Yeah. The Saints drafting a quarterback, given their talent on both defense and offense, would make a lot more sense. The other thing you've got to look at, too, is look at the blue-chip players that New Orleans still has. Like, there's a lot of talent in New Orleans. Atlanta's not necessarily talent-deficient, but their talent is nowhere near New Orleans. New Orleans could reload and legitimately go make a run. Atlanta's not there. They're two or three years away from that. So, Desmond Ritter? I think Kenny Pickett would be a great pick for New Orleans, too. Same short area windows, very accurate. Right, he should go to either Pittsburgh or New Orleans. Because, I mean, it, it's not like Drew Brees had the biggest arm in the world. You don't need to in New Orleans. I mean, they, they scheme around whatever they have. And Sean Payton does a phenomenal job of getting the most out of whoever it is. So, regardless, I think New Orleans should take a quarterback, but in round two. Take one of the guys that falls and do what you do with them, right? Just get another blue chip number one pick, right, at a position that you already have a very expensive player at so that you can move off of them. And give yourself a little bit of cap relief, whether that's an edge rusher, whether that's a tackle, whatever you want to do there, right? I think the the move is alleviate some of the the cap pressure that you have by drafting someone in round one at a position that you're overpaying right now, and then get your quarterback in round two and let Sean Payton work his magic. But still, much more justifiable if the Saints go quarterback than if the Falcons go quarterback in the teams in the round one. Yeah, yeah, no question. The Falcons must channel Rick Spielman moving forward. Yeah. Rick Spielman drafted a lineman in the middle of the first round named Christian Derrissaw. One of our favorite picks of the 2021 draft was Christian Derrissaw. And Christian Derrissaw's injury is why they lost. When you lose your left tackle and you lose your entire linebacking core, your best edge rusher, you're going to lose to professional football teams. Yeah. When you're that decimated by injuries, and that's what happened to the Vikings more than you know, decisions made by Mike Zimmer. But just because the the Vikings are imploding doesn't mean that Rick Spielman's not a good general manager. No. Like you, I go back to that Christian Derrissaw pick. That's why Rick Spielman is so valuable and is a top five general manager in the league. It's not just traced back to the record of the team. No. You need to evaluate these general managers in context. Look at the players they're actually selecting. Look at the contracts they're constructing. I mean, how many how many teams would kill to have Minnesota's roster? Forget the records, right? That's one of the better rosters in the league. Now, coaching has a lot to do with whether or not they play like it and whether or not they win or lose, right? A general manager can't go out there and coach for you. Their job is to assemble talent. And I think that Rick Spielman has done a spectacular job of assembling talent for Minnesota, for Mike Zimmer, for Kirk Cousins, right? How many how many teams can lose a player of Stephon Diggs' caliber, go into round one, pick a guy, and immediately be right back where they were? Nobody. That doesn't happen. Outside of Pittsburgh, where they draft a fourth-round receiver every three years, and he turns into a megastar. I have no idea how they do it. But outside of Pittsburgh, who does that? Nobody. It doesn't work that way, right? And I think people get way too into wins and losses as it relates to the general manager. It's like the QB wins thing, right? The, the wins and losses aren't on a general manager. There's nothing they can do about it. Your job is to construct a team that has talent. We love you, Rick. We do. And we get a question from a listener. You can email us, podfather at rotounderworld.com. 
How does contract value affect fantasy football dynasty valuations? The major concern that you have, right, is for a player is when the team has the ability to get a younger, cheaper replacement. So, for example, if you're in Cincinnati, right, and Tyler Boyd was on your team last year, your major concern is, well, T. Higgins has ascended, right? So now Tyler Boyd's gone from the number one option. Now he's a number two. Then they draft Jamar Chase. Now he's the third option, right? The concern now is, will Cincinnati pay him? Now my dynasty value of this player is totally in flux because we have no idea. He could go somewhere and be a number one. He could go somewhere and be a number three. He could be stuck in Cincinnati as that third option. You just have no idea what his value is going to be, and that's the worst kind of asset to have. You don't want an asset that has no discernible value. Right? Nobody's trading for Tyler Boyd because they think he's the next big thing. You're just forced to hold on to him until we have clarity. Well, with Tyler Boyd, my concern was that he signed a $40 million contract, but only $9 million guaranteed. Right. That immediately sounded alarm bells in my head. That number one, he's not a number one. Like That's the team acknowledging after scouting this player internally for years he is not a number one and we're going to sign him to a contract that we can get out of in a couple years so they can get out of this tyler boyd contract next year yeah he's owed 10 million dollars and it's 2.8 million dollars of dead money which is nothing so they have to decide whether tyler boyd is more valuable then $7 million of cap space. Is he worth $7 million? And this is absolute worst case scenario in Dynasty where it's an absolute coin flip. We have no idea whether the Cincinnati Bengals are going to look at Tyler Boyd this offseason and keep him or cut him. Keep or cut. You want to be able to project whether a player will be kept or cut. In Tyler Boyd's case, you have no idea, and you have no idea whether or not he's better off in Cincinnati, tethered to Joe Burrow in a prolific offense, or he's better off getting cut and going somewhere else. But if he goes somewhere else, he's not going to be the number one. Cincinnati told us when he first signed his contract, the extension reveals that he's not a number one. He's not going to be a number one no matter where he goes. He's going to be a number two at best with, in all likelihood, an inferior quarterback on an inferior offense. Yeah. And this was revealed the moment he signs the extension. These concerns were laid in front of you. You knew, oh, they're going to draft a wide receiver, maybe multiple. He's going to slide into the slot over the next couple years. And his long-term home in the NFL is highly uncertain. Well, his his long-term upside was hijacked, right? Because they took two players— that functionally replace what he did well. So you're either left to pick up the scraps if you're Tyler Boyd, or you've got to be moved somewhere where likely you've got to learn a new system, and odds are your production is never going to match what it was in, what, 2019? Like, it's it's really, really, really tough to have any kind of asset like that in Dynasty only because nobody's going to value them more than you did because you had them in 2019 when, you know, they did big things, and you've seen what they can do, and you're still tethered to that. 
while everybody else sees it for what it is. They're the, the third receiver on the Cincinnati Bengals. A very, very good offense, but you're still a three. So that's where the contract value and the contract structure, specifically how much guaranteed money is included, can be a window into a player's long-term upside. Yeah. And with Tyler Boyd coming off 1,000-yard season in 2019, he was a sell. Yeah. He has been parked in that you know wide receiver 40 slot on our dynasty rankings for years. And the contract was a window into his dynasty valuation, his lifetime value rating. Now you look at other players, another way that contracts can affect dynasty value is how long a player will experience, especially a young player, high-level target competition. So like in New York, how long will Corey Davis be there siphoning targets away from Elijah Moore? Like So understanding that Corey Davis contract helps you gauge the value of Elijah Moore. Now, Corey Davis has been hurt all year. Yeah. But assume that he was healthy this year, he would have siphoned off significant targets as the veteran, as the number one, signed to be the alpha in New York. And when you see that Elijah Moore goes to the Jets, your first thought needs to be, let me go look at the fine de- the fine grain details on this Corey Davis contract. Yeah, and, and I think that this, this dynasty and contract kind of side-by-side is most important for wide receivers because that's the one position where it's very difficult to project among all of these players where the targets are going to be down the line, right? Because, I mean, we can kind of tell this year, okay, it's going to be kind of Chase and Higgins back and forth in Cincinnati. Okay, they're just going to funnel targets to Elijah Moore in New York, right? Then you get to a situation at the end of the year where a lot of these players that were injured that allowed someone to break out come back, right? Now how do you value Elijah Moore and Corey Davis? That's where you get into the contract stuff and kind of read in more. It's not so much with the quarterbacks or the running backs or the tight ends or any other position. It's really receivers are where your your contract, when they're not rookies, will tell you a lot, lot, lot about how they plan on using said player and what they hope to get out of them. And the reason why we're so bullish on, or one of the reasons why we're so bullish on Elijah Moore was you look at the Corey Davis contract and you're like, wait a second, Corey, that's a two-year deal. Yeah. That wasn't a three-year deal, as was reported, three-year mega deal. No, he's only going to be there two years. In fact, not only is he guaranteed no money in 2023, Corey Davis's cap hit is less than a million dollars. He's not going to be there. He's there at most two years, and you know they're rebuilding anyway. So Elijah Moore is going to be catching passes from a rookie quarterback who never beat a good team in college and competing for targets with Corey Davis. And Corey Davis himself was never an elite wide receiver in the NFL. He's never had a 1,000-yard season. Yeah. So you're like, okay, they signed a fake alpha who's never had a 1,000-yard season to what is ostensibly a two-year contract. So we know at least worst-case scenario for Elijah Moore, he is going to be the undisputed alpha in New York with a seasoned quarterback in just two years. And that's that's the epitome of an asset that you wish you had and or a buy now. But the reason why this is important is because at the time, Corey Davis and Kenny Galladay were both negotiating 
two of the most lucrative contracts for their particular wide receiver free agent class. But the difference in the details of these two contracts is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, the both New York teams, the numbers on paper might look somewhat similar. Uh, Kenny Galladay is there for the long term, and they are screwed. They're fucked. They're screwed. They're completely fucked. Th- there's no out there. $10 million is the dead money charge in 2023, right? So it's less than a million dollars in 2023 of dead money for Corey Davis. It's $10 million in 2023 for Kenny Galladay. And then it's another $7 million in 2024. That's the kick in the nuts. The 2024 charge is the kick in the nuts, Anand. That, that's, where you, that's where you really get to see, okay, who's overpaying for guys projecting and who's paying for what they've done already. And, and you're working with our writers, Ray Marzarella, to create a top 32 general manager list. And that Kenny Galladay contract's all you need to know about Dave Gettleman. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. If you knew nothing about Dave Gettleman except this Kenny Galladay contract, that's the window into the truth. That is such a poorly constructed contract that it's indefensible. It would be bad if Kenny Galladay had the production on the field that warranted such a contract. Yeah, now it's catastrophic. It should cost Dave Gettleman his job. Like when he when when they bring him in to fire him, they should just slide that Kenny Galladay contract across the table and be like you're not surviving this. Yeah. How about that number two overall Saquon Barkley pick? $7 million in 2024. So if you're comparing a Kadarius Tony to an Elijah Moore, that's a critical data point to consider. Yep. Absolutely. Worst case scenario. Worst case. Elijah Moore is the undisputed alpha as of you know, September 2023. Yeah. And that's assuming Corey Davis isn't hurt again. And that's assuming that Corey Davis actually does the unprecedented Corey Davis thing of putting up a 1,000-yard season and being a true alpha, which he's never done. right? So last season's free agent class was the year of the fake alpha. Corey Davis, Kenny Galladay, they, they are the signature fake alphas in the NFL. You just can't pay them like an alpha. It's fine to sign one of these betas. You just can't pay them like an alpha. The Jets did the right thing. They brought in a Corey Davis on a reasonable contract. There's nothing to criticize with this Corey Davis contract. None. Kenny Galladay. It's like, what? Whoa. Yeah, I don't know where they... What? Oof. I mean, if anyone's trying to study to be an NFL general manager, if there was like a course, like, go study this Kenny Galladay contract and, and, and just to learn what not to do. We're not saying Galladay's a bad player. None of that is true. But what is true is they're functionally paying Kenny Galladay into three years from now as he has never, ever, ever produced like an alpha receiver, ever. Right. He's never had a 25% target share season. That is the litmus test for alpha receiver. Hey, can you put up at least a 25% target share? If everything else goes wrong in a given season, at least show us the 25% target share. Kenny Galladay could never do that. There are murky waters for certain wide receiver groups, right? Where Which would you rather have, this or that, right? I think the best example that that we can give is that Cincinnati one. But look, like 
both New Yorks are kind of telling you where their allegiances lie, for better or worse. The Denver Broncos told you where their allegiances lie, for better or worse, right? In signing Tim Patrick and Corton Sutton. Understanding that is critical to projecting Jerry Judy's production over the next few years and determining his lifetime value rating. Right. Him, Hamler, Fant. Devontae Smith is in a much better situation. Oh, yeah. Regardless of the quarterback play than Jerry Judy, his Alabama teammate. And the the really odd part about this, right, is preseason. You would have assumed that they would commit hard to Jerry Judy. And instead, it's the exact opposite. They're now committed long-term to, to both Tim Patrick and Cortland Sutton. Well, they're both going to be there at least next year. Yeah. So Jerry Judy is not going to get target share relief until 2023. And that's at the earliest, right? Right. Tim Patrick carries a $10 million cap charge in 2022. So you know he's going to be there next year. Sutton's cap charge is $17 million next year. But then it's also $4 million the year after. So Sutton's likely there through 2023. Jerry Judy's not going to be the number one there until 2024 at the earliest. And that assumes that assumes that they pick up his fifth-year option. Yeah. You see the, how this wet rope just starts to slip through your hands when you're evaluating Jerry Judy for your Dynasty League, whether or not you should go trade for him or whether you should put him on the block, whether you should select him in your startup. And, and, and that is compounded by the fact that they don't have any quarterback certainty. So there's this cloud of uncertainty with the quarterback position hanging over him as well. There's still Hamler and Fant there too. Like it's not just those two. That's the really the, the really terrifying part about having Judy in Dynasty is you not only do you have no idea what his role is going to be, we have no idea if there's a role for him. Period. There's, I mean, what if Hamler breaks out? Oh come on! What if Hamler breaks out? What if Fant breaks out? Hamler tore his ACL and won't be 100% until some point into the 2022 season. We know that Tim Patrick is a possession receiver. Yep. And when you're comparing the production of Judy to Sutton, so far in the NFL, Jerry Judy's been the more productive wide receiver when they've shared the field together. Cortland Sutton just happened to have the big breakout season the year before Jerry Judy arrived. But I would rather have Jerry Judy in Dynasty, but I don't want any of these guys. I don't want any part of it. I don't want Fant. I don't want anyone in this passing game other than Albert Akue Boonham because he's very inexpensive in Dynasty. So of all these guys, I'll just take the least expensive dude. I'll take Tim Patrick and Akue Boonham. Those are the guys I'm going to go ahead and roster in Dynasty. The price you pay for Sutton, Judy, too high. Fant especially, too high. Way too high. Get out of here. For people who you don't, obviously the quarterback thing is the biggest red flag. Yeah, This is part of the reason why this was part of the calculus for moving Pat Fryermuth ahead of Noah Fant on our Dynasty rankings a few weeks ago before any other Dynasty service did that. You'll find that time and time again, whether it be Javante Williams moving him into the top five before any other service or Noah Fant moving him out of the top five, we have tomorrow's newspaper 
in Dynasty. Yeah. And part of it is understanding the dynamics of these contracts and how they will affect opportunity and usage now and two years from now. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, if you have someone committed under contract, you're going to be forced to make that work, right? The Giants have to find ways to make Kenny Galladay work even after Gettleman's gone. They have no other choice. They have to make it work. We have an uncertainty quotient with these players, and the uncertainty quotient with a player like Cortland Sutton is so high because there's both target distribution uncertainty and quarterback uncertainty. It's like with Calvin Ridley. There's quarterback uncertainty. There's huge uncertainty with Michael Thomas. Will he be there? And if he is there, who's the quarterback going to be in New Orleans? Right. That's the beauty of a T. Higgins and a Jamar Chase. Unlike Tyler Boyd, there's no contract uncertainty and there's no quarterback uncertainty. So you feel so warm and fuzzy inside. Incredibly warm, incredibly fuzzy, Anand, when you draft a T. Higgins or a Jamar Chase in Dynasty. Yeah. It's worth it. That level of certainty is worth a great deal. Yeah, because ultimately speaking, right, you love Devontae Smith as a dynasty asset, but do we like him more than we like a Jamar Chase or a T. Higgins, right? We know what Joe Burrow is going to be. We know that he's going to be there forever. There's no, no one is worried about is Joe Burrow the guy or not. So you know investing that capital into a Chase or a Higgins you know what they are. There's no uncertainty there, right? And you may get a discount on somebody because there is uncertainty, but the certainty is worth the price premium. Now, when you look at the wide receivers that are scheduled to be unrestricted free agents in 2022, the class is so much more impressive than the 2021 class. I mean, there is no comparison Who are the top five wide receivers that are due to be free agents, unrestricted in 2022? So you've got Devontae Adams, DJ Chark, Michael Gallup, Mike Williams, Chris Godwin. Oh! And you didn't even list Juju Smith-Schuster. No, Juju's not on there, right? Because I I think at this point— Juju Smith-Schuster is not even in the top five. That's how good this class is. Yeah. Because a lot of these guys signed one-year deals knowing that— the salary cap was resetting and that the TV deals were coming in. With with these five guys specifically, right, they're going to be, uh, most of them anyway, are going to be worth what last year's free agents got and the teams that were willing to wait a year saying, hey, yes, we could commit $18 million a year to this guy. He's not worth $18 million a year. He's being paid that because he's the only one available. Now are going to reap the benefits of that where now you get a Mike Williams, a Chris Godwin, a Michael Gallup at the price that somebody paid Kenny Galladay last year. That's why it's worth waiting. Devontae Adams will actually deliver. Oh, yeah. And be worth a Kenny Galladay-level contract. Where is he going to go? Where do you want Devontae Adams to go? I think, logically, he's probably going to be back in Green Bay because they don't want to lose him. It's very rare that a wide receiver of that stature a hall of famer yeah right he's going to the hall of fame like he's on a hall of fame track right now it's very rare for a player of that quality to change teams the last time a player even close to Devonte adams ability changed teams was alan robinson coming off a torn acl yeah for rebuilding jacksonville jaguars team right this is a different scenario so Devonte adams is gonna have to make it work next year with Jordan Love. Yeah. 
I, I just I can't imagine that they let him out of that building. I, I like there are fun landing spots here and there and everywhere, but I just I I don't see a way which they let him go. And they've got a lot of cap math to do in Green Bay. There's a whole lot that they've got to do. Um, but I, I even then I can't imagine that they let him walk. I've been thinking DJ Chark's gonna change teams. But the more I look at this Jacksonville Jaguars roster and acknowledge that LaVisca Schnault is not happening and they're trying to get production from Jamal Agnew and now they're getting it from Laquan Treadwell, I bet they're thinking in the meeting rooms, damn, imagine if we had Shark instead of Treadwell. Yeah. This would really help Trevor Lawrence. I think that DJ Chark's value is rising based on his absence. Yeah. Like his absence is enhancing his own value especially to this particular team because they have no one that can win on the outside. So the probabilities in my head have shifted that DJ Shark goes elsewhere in free agency. I was 75% chance thinking he's gone. They're going to build around LaVisca Chenault and Travis Etienne with Trevor Lawrence. Now that ETN's injured and Chenault's not firing, I now think there's a better than 50-50 chance he's back in Jacksonville. Yeah, I don't know that anybody else is going to offer him the money that Jacksonville will. He hasn't shown enough. He's a Kenny Galladay doppelganger. Like, he's your classic upside beta. And they need him. I think they need him. But Dallas doesn't necessarily need Michael Gallup. I assume Michael Gallup will be the best wide receiver in free agency in 2022. However, I have started to hear rumors that Dallas could re-sign and extend Gallup and engineer Amari Cooper's departure. See, here's the weird part about that to me, right? So I've heard this. I've heard similar things. Do you think that Michael Gallup at 15 to 18 million dollars a year is a significant not even upgrade, but if is that contract worth more than Amari Cooper at 19 to 20 million a year? Like you have a very defined quantity in Amari Cooper. Very defined. You know what he is, you know what he's not, right? Gallup now on upside. Don't get me wrong. Gallup's upside is the moon. It's he's a lot of fun to watch. He's a very explosive receiver. You have a fire tongue today. You're setting the decision point record for ridiculously hot, absurd takes. What has Michael Gallup done? Michael Gallup's upside is not the moon. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. But he's not Amari Cooper. (laughs) Who is? What's happening? He's a member of the best wide receiver trio in the league. Right. And he's never going to get the usage that he deserves on that team as long as Cooper and Lamb are there. If I'm the Cowboys, I don't bring back Michael Gallup, knowing that I'm loaded across the board. Like, we have a quality offensive line. We have a quality defense. We have playmakers everywhere. Let him go. And in the 20s, you can get a good receiver. I mean, we we recommend waiting until the second round to get your receiver. Yeah. But this, this could be one of those situations where they let an elite talent make it to Jerry Jones. In the case of Drake London... He could make it to Jerry Jones because he gets pushed into the back of the first round because he's not able to participate in the pre-draft process. He had that severe foot-ankle injury. So all of this started 
Wouldn't that be a better play? Wouldn't it be a better use of funds yeah. to use a draft pick on a Drake London than pay Michael Gallup out of pocket? Yep. And the reason is the reason any of this is a question is because C.D. Lamb fell to them and they took him, right? Because Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper were supposed to be the long-term duo. And instead, C.D. Lamb fell into their laps and now Michael Gallup's expendable. Now, they do a lot of great work, the three of them, right? That's the best trio in the league. I don't think anybody could argue that. But it doesn't make any sense to pay him 15 to $18 million to be a third option on a team. It, it just, that's an absolute misallocation of capital. And I think it makes more sense to do what you're talking about, to draft Drake London or to take somebody else and let him go flourish elsewhere as the wide receiver 1B, so to speak, for somebody else, right? That, that's truly his role. I, I think that's right. And I think that the NFL values brand equity. So it's one thing to sign a guy from the Lions like Kenny Galladay. It's another thing to sign a guy with that Texas Star helmet, right? Yeah. I They're going to pay a little extra, a little bit of premium, signing a, a wide receiver away from Jerry Jones. General managers will pay a little bit extra for that. Where do you want him to go? I think there are a bunch of interesting landing spots. And funnily enough, a lot of them are in his own division. Like, Philly and Washington would both be great ones. I think yeah. I think both of them could desperately use him. The Washington one's interesting. The Philly one, we've talked about how they need an ex-receiver badly. It's a complete void in that offense. We understand that. Washington is interesting because Terry McLaurin has been miscast for years in Washington. He should not be running all these intermediate routes and bailing the offense out time and time again. He has a dual purpose. He's a dual purpose player, a dual purpose threat in that he can stretch the field. Yeah. So if they had a Michael Gallup playing X, they could move McLaurin to Z. And I would love to see McLaurin at that Z position, taking more of these jet sweeps, running double moves, getting down the field and winning with greater target depth. I think that would help their team yeah. to move McLaurin out to Z and then move Curtis Samuel into that gadget role in the slot in the backfield. That would be my dream scenario for the Washington offense. I think so too. I, I really love that fit. And obviously Dallas would hate to see it because obviously you never want to lose a really good player to a division rival. But I think that's probably the best fit for his skills, right? Like it would be fun to watch him and Devontae in Philly. We've, we've been over that, but I think Washington is the best fit. He's that missing piece that if Logan Thomas, Curtis Samuel, McLaurin are all there and healthy, he's the guy that makes that unit a whole unit that you could drop a quarterback into with an Antonio Gibson, and then you feel good about the offense as a whole instead of these individual pieces. I think that's, I'm with you. I think that's the dream fit is Washington. What is Tampa waiting for? Why haven't they extended Godwin yet? I have no idea. They're letting Godwin go out and catch 15 passes in a game, and his value is just going up. Isn't this irresponsible by their general manager? Shouldn't they have locked in Chris Godwin knowing what they have, and he's only going to make them pay more and more and more, and they can't afford to lose him? Tom Brady's not going to let them let Chris Godwin walk. It's not possible. You can't, you can't possibly disappoint Tom Brady by letting Chris Godwin walk. I think they played with fire in the terms of they thought Antonio Brown would take a bigger step this year. 
or just be a bigger part of the offense and be healthy. Right, and would would alleviate some of the pressure to either re-sign Chris Godwin. You know, you could give him another two-year deal and be like, hey, man, we have a championship window with Brady. Come back on this deal because you haven't done what you did when Jameis was our quarterback or last year or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Fucked up, man. As soon as Antonio Brown went down and the doctors reported back what that injury was to Jason Light, he should have imme- his first instinct, his next move, the reflex response would have been to grab the phone and call Chris Godwin's agent and get him locked in. Yep, because I mean, fucked up. Because I mean, look, like it lo- it looks a lot different if it's Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown, Scotty Miller, Rob Gronkowski. You take Godwin out, and suddenly Antonio Brown isn't the fun third piece anymore. Now he's got to be there, right? Scotty Miller is no longer this fun slot option that runs this very specific routes and and is kind of a gadget player. Now he's a functional part of your offense. There's a whole lot that goes out of the window if Chris Godwin leaves, and I don't think they can let that happen. And they tried out Tyler Johnson as their number three, and he was catching one pass a game. They can't afford to let Godwin go. 15 catches, 143 yards last week in a key divisional game against Atlanta on the road. He just made $10 million. Yeah. That was a $10 million game for Chris Godwin. It was. And I think the biggest thing is when you need bailed out, right? When you need the bailout. For for years for Brady, that guy was Edelman and that guy was Gronkowski or it was Welker. Chris Godwin is the bailout guy for this offense. On third and nine, when you need nine, it's not Mike Evans that's getting the ball, it's Godwin. I don't know how your offense functions without him. Right. And you got to be careful. You got to be careful trading players in Dynasty just because you believe that they won't be with their current team next year. Or in the case of a Mike Williams, that they're going to lose their elite quarterback. Yeah. Be careful. Be careful because what can happen is a team that you assume will be 500 or miss the playoffs because they always do, they take this huge step forward. So not only do you have to understand the contract, you have to understand the team trajectory. Knowing that the Chargers are one of the most talent-rich teams in the league, you got to be careful assuming Mike Williams is gone in 2022 just because he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. Based on this Chris Godwin corollary, he signed a one-year deal last year because they wanted to run it back. Yeah. Now you're in a situation with Mike Williams where there's going to be immense pressure to run this back, especially if they make a run deep into the playoffs. And you could expect Mike Williams to be back in Los Angeles next year. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's not like they haven't prepared for life after Mike Williams. They just drafted Josh Palmer, and that was the case for prioritizing Josh Palmer in rookie drafts was that Mike Williams is going to be a free agent. Mike Williams is going to be a free agent. Mike Williams is going to be a free agent. Ah, Maybe not. Maybe. Maybe not. Be careful. You know what happens when you assume, Anand. That's such a tough one. Of all of these guys, I think that one has the most potential to change in the next couple weeks. I think we feel pretty good about what the other teams involved here are going to do. I think Devontae stays. I think Chark, we think, most likely stays. Gallup is probably gone. Godwin's probably staying. Mike Williams is the one that over the next five, six, seven weeks, how the Chargers do is going to directly impact whether or not they keep him. And I just talked to Austin Eckler. Hey, we have an inside man. He reports that Keenan Allen is likely to miss week 14. Oh, no. So the Chargers win this game. 
Mike Williams likely has a monster performance given the target vacuum. Yeah. Without Keenan Allen, we could have back-to-back contract winning weeks by NFL wide receivers. Chris Godwin making $10 million in week 13. Mike Williams making $10 million and guaranteeing his place with the Chargers long-term in week 14. Mike Williams making $10 million and guaranteeing his place with the Chargers long-term in week 14. Yeah, and it could definitely happen, right? I mean, he's got the talent. Nobody's denying that. He's going to get the targets. Nobody's denying that either. And we know how good the quarterback is. So, yikes. I mean, Tom Telesco, get the checkbook ready. If I'm Mike Williams, I look at that COVID diagnosis, and I'm like, calling my agent, Watch this. Get ready. Get ready. Get get ready. Get, get ready for me to make you a lot of money this Sunday. Oh, yeah. And have Tom Telesco on speed dial Monday morning. Yeah, that's what I would do. I mean, shit, you know he's probably going to post this monster game. Whether the stats reflect it or not, you're just going to look out there and go, oh, yeah, that's a number one wide receiver for somebody, right? And, and then all of us with Josh Palmer are like, Ah, oh. <laughs> oh, that's tough. Deflated. That's just tough, right? Like that's how quickly things change. Antonio Brown was supposed to be a big part of this Buccaneers offense, and instead he might be cut this week. Like that's just how quickly things change. Anand, that's the show. We did it. We got in under the wire, barely. Efficient show. The most efficient decision point ever also happened to be the one with the most completely and utterly absurd prognostications by Anand Nanduri. Yes, sir. We're going to cut those up. I got to cut those up for the outtakes and just back to back to back. Just for fun. <laughs> yep. Atlanta making the playoffs, Gallup being elite. We're going to we're going to put it all together. I love Michael Gallup. I know you do. I just think it's funny. It is funny. You're not a hot taker. I'm not a hot taker. You went hot take on me today. I went hot take on you, but it's because I believe them, not for the clicks. You were you were floating into the air. I, I couldn't catch you. I couldn't catch your feet. You were right. just you were gone. It's it's fine, right? At some point, people are gonna come come and say what they want about every receiver, and I think Gallup, given the opportunity, would be really really good. So officially, we we already have a player performance at stake for next year. We do. We'll have to keep monitoring Michael Gallup. We do love, him. and and if he has his second breakout season. He had that 1,000-yard season. Yep. Looked great doing it. And we'll monitor him next year. If he can follow that up, have that follow-up breakout, then you look very, very right. Yeah. If he goes and signs some destination contract and pulls a Kenny Galladay as a pumped-up beta. Yeah, that's not going to look so hot. (laughs) I hope he doesn't do that. I really hope he doesn't do that. (laughs) X-beta machina. 
he can't pull an ex-beta machina because uh, we'll be just be playing that that clip on a loop. That's that, the risk with your podcast. That is the risk with you podcast, right? Say goodbye to the stream. Bye, stream. Bye, stream. Keeping us on our toes. Sorry about our technical difficulties. Well, they're mine. Matt's usually got his. No, no, I deleted the previous stream. Don't talk with it. They don't know about that. I deleted everything. I deleted everything. All the people that are that are coming to this show, most of them don't watch live. You, we can't allude to previous technical difficulties, Anand. Yes, the segue, the segue. <laughs> but yes, we are going live in spite of a Pittsburgh Steeler win. We typically go live after a Pittsburgh Steeler loss, and we had planned to set up a bit where we call my my father-in-law, but they didn't lose. And uh, sometimes Ben Roethlisberger wakes up on Sunday morning and his body feels good enough to go out there and have a, a, a reasonably adequate starting quarterback performance, which is what he had on Sunday. And it's no surprise that he would get up for the Ravens, an interdivision game against the Ravens. Those are always close games. Almost always. Not always, but most of the time. And so no one was surprised by that outcome. I was like, oh, you were surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. All right. AFC North 2019 game, Steelers-Ravens, no one's surprised by that. I would be shocked if the Steelers make the playoffs. I'll still be sh- I would absolutely, that would shock the hell out of me because the Bengals still gave the Chargers a run. The Bengals were coming in that game. I could see that the fear in the eyes. I could see that the, the Chargers realized they had lost the momentum. And there's that little bit of doubt that creeps in, that fear, when you, you realize you've lost the momentum. The Bengals have seized control of the day. You don't want that to happen. It would be certainly something for the Bengals to go worst to first in Joe Burrow's second year. I think that would, there are a lot of takeaways from that. Get ready for it. And, and, I, and I, I alluded to my favorite movie, Edge of Tomorrow, with that seizing control of the day reference. And I have bad news. I've been doing some research, waiting for the sequel. And Emily Blunt is not confident a sequel is going to happen. In fact, she had a take recently that a sequel to that movie is simply not possible in today's cinematic movie-making environment. Just look at the, the latest James Bond movie. They tried to save some money, and it didn't work. It was a total flop. And the more of these big-budget action movies that flop, as more and more people are unplugging and just watching all their movies in their their home theaters, it's becoming challenging for these big-budget movies to get made. It's much harder to get these big-budget movies made, especially those that don't have the established brand. Right, The established franchises can still get made. If it's Marvel, it can still get made. Maybe James Bond it can still get made. They're trying to save some money, but it gets made. I think that Edge of Tomorrow could be its own brand. It could be this sort of dynastic movie franchise, but they only have one in the books. I mean, it was wildly successful worldwide, and that's why the second can get done. It's possible, but the first one cost $200 million. The second one, given that the price increases across the board of everything, especially with logistics, movie making is that much more expensive the next Edge of Tomorrow, if they made the sequel, it would be $300 million. That's a big ask for Warner Brothers. I get it. Right, because especially with people not going to the movie theater as much. I'm a raging Edge of Tomorrow fan. It's my favorite movie of all time. 
and, and you almost spit out your coffee. I get it. Like it, it's a hot take, understood, but it's my personal preference. Yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with saying it's your favorite, right? And he's like, "There's no way." And, and you know, I'll, I've I've gone to war for this movie. Right? I've been belittled and condescended in arguments that this is a good movie because those that say it's not a good movie just because it's Tom Cruise, like that's easy, right? I can knock that down. That's a straw man. I can knock that down all day. I'll, I'll take a hatchet to that straw man. That's not a problem at all. But you know, justifying that it's like the best action movie, like that, that, that takes you know some nuance and, and, and sophisticated argument. But it, it's objectively the best aliens we've seen in movies since the movie Alien. I mean, Ridley Scott invented the signature movie Alien. Since that, I, I think the Edge of Tomorrow aliens are the best. They're great. Acid for blood. It's great. I love Ridley Scott's aliens, to be honest. I, I think he doesn't? Yeah. They don't think of him as Michael Bay. This guy is a true movie genius. I mean, this guy is an action movie savant. Does he get that quote-unquote S-tier level, though? Like he should? Because I think he should. I think he should be up there with the Spielbergs and, and you know, whoever else you want to put in that tier. I think given what he's given us, right? Maybe not in terms of movie per, per movie, but overall his impact, I think he's in that S tier. Ridley Scott is uh, a beast, absolute beast. Yesterday, we streamed the interview with Austin Eckler. Did you happen to catch that? I did. What a rock star, man. What a guy. What a fun show. Yeah. What a fun show. And then I I, I love producing the podcast. The, the intro music I chose was San Diego Superchargers. It's like from the seventies. Their theme song. Oh my god! You did not really, you did not really pick that, did you? Really? Back when Kellen Winslow was the star. Yeah, you should listen to the podcast. It's great. I really had a lot of fun with that show. I had a lot of fun talking to Austin. And then later this week, we had the Sonic Truth stream with Nate List. Nate's texting me for the you know, show sheet questions. Who are we going to talk about? And I'm like, oh my god, we got this is going to be the most content that the Roto Underworld Radio Network has produced in its history just randomly prior to week 14 of the nfl season we just happen to have all these shows come together like this is when austin was available this is when nate list wanted to do the dynasty show and anand wanted to do back-to-back weeks of decision points lots to talk about we have questions from listeners there's a bunch of uh, contract some interesting contracts to talk about oh yeah and we talk about Pittsburgh being that team that should have known that they needed to rebuild last year, but they were completely delusional, signing, you know, making all these, dumping these late draft picks, trying to sign Joe Schubert or Schobert or whoever, Joel Schobert, Joe Schubert, some Schubert Schobert guy from Jacksonville, giving up a late pick per head. It like didn't make sense. And then all the Pittsburgh fans celebrating and victory lapping, getting these fringe starters for late picks. And it's like, wait a second, you guys are giving up capital. This is a mistake. You, you don't have a chance to win this year. You need to be rebuilding. You need to be blowing it up. Or at least finding a clever way to rebuild on the fly. Let's go, let's go live live. Ready? This is the decision point with Anand Nanduri. San Diego Superchargers! Holy shit, we might be in the playoffs and we have no business being there. And that's a slide! That should be a goddamn slide in the Arthur Blank slideshow! 
the corporate presentation that we're going to put together. You and me, we're taking over Atlanta. We're taking over the Falcons. Fuck no. What are you doing? No, even if they hit, it's not worth a top 10 pick. Fact is that you knew I wasn't going to have this conversation without taking a shot at Zach Wilson. It's just teed up. Holy God, is this a year you got to trust your scouts? Strong armed quarterback. Take your picket. Love that, man. Some Schubert Schobert guy. Evan Neal, Alabama. That's the dream, Matt. Evan Neal's going to Jacksonville. Him, Hamler, Fant. There's still Hamler and Fant there, too. What if Hamler breaks out? Gallup's upside is the moon. You're setting the decision point record for ridiculously hot, absurd takes. Scout the player, not the helmet. He's a Kenny Galladay doppelganger. Like, he's your classic upside beta for Jameis Winston. And that assumes that he attacks rehabilitation with true vigor, unlike he's attacked his strength and conditioning in his entire career. Love that, man. They're fucked. They're screwed. They're completely fucked. They're screwed. They're fucked. They're screwed. They're completely fucked. They're screwed. They're fucked. They're screwed. They're completely fucked. They're screwed. Ex-beta machina. Gallup's upside is the moon.